This is MIT Technology Review. Looking back, we might remember 2022 as the year automated creativity went mainstream and easy-to-use tools became overnight hits. Now we can turn our selfies into digital art or write anything from poems to whole research papers with just a few taps. Anyone with internet can use these powerfully complex algorithms thanks to a boom in generative AI. So it's a good time as we jump into a new year to take stock of where we are with AI research and where we might be headed. I'm Jennifer Strong. In this episode, Tech Review's senior editor for AI, Will Douglas Heaven, is joined on the MTech stage by a panel of luminaries for a live conversation at the MIT Media Lab. I'd like to introduce three amazing speakers, Raya Hadsel, Jan LeCun, and Ashley Lawrence. Raya Hadsel is Senior Director of Research and Robotics at DeepMind, and her work focuses on making AI and robots learn as they go, and on a problem known as catastrophic forgetting, which is where neural networks typically have to be wiped before they can be taught anything new. Jan LeCun is Vice President and Chief Scientist at Meta and a professor at New York University. He's also a joint recipient with Jeff Hinton and Yoshio Bengio of the Turing Award for breakthroughs that have made deep neural networks a critical component in computing. And Ashley Lawrence is Vice President and Distinguished Scientist at Microsoft Research. His work has covered AI, robotics, and neuroscience. He currently serves on the National AI Advisory Committee, which advises the White House about AI. He's also a recorded hip-hop artist. So Raya, Jan, Ashley, please join me. Hi, everyone. Now, let's start with you, Ashley. When people talk about you know, intelligence in the context of artificial intelligence, what, what does that mean to you? Because often I see... You know, when people have arguments about whether or not something is or isn't intelligent, or you know, this thing is more intelligent than that, they're often based on a misunderstanding. So I think it would be helpful if we all get clear on what we're talking about. So Ashley, what does it mean to you? So I find it most helpful to think about AI in terms of its purpose. I think about the purpose of AI as amplifying human intelligence. And of course, we have a lot to learn about the nature of human intelligence but we share an intuition about how we use our intelligence. We use our intelligence to pursue our goals. And that can take many forms, trying to be productive at some task, trying to have a good time. Achieving our goals requires work, physical work, mm -hmm. cognitive work. AI, to me, is the broad family of technologies that helps us with that work, physical and cognitive work. As machines become more intelligent, essentially what they're doing is becoming more capable of helping us in those ways. Machine learning is proving to be a very useful tool for creating such technologies. And of course, machine learning, uh, you know, family of technologies that enable machines to get better with data and experience. What about you, Jan? It's, it's a moving target. So you can't answer that question without sort of putting it in the context of a particular period. It used to be that in the 50s, compilers were considered AI. Basically, all of computer science was considered AI. Solving equations numerically was considered AI. Even uh, doing things that are completely automated now, which is like symbolic, computing symbolically an integral, you know, that was like a big, really complex thing that only certain people could learn. It's actually fairly simple to do, or playing chess or playing Go. So there's a lot of tasks that we consider intelligent 
uh, because they're hard for us, but turned out to be relatively simple problems. So that creates kind of a moving target for AI. So another possible definition would be the, the capability of perception, reasoning, and action mm -hmm. to achieve particular goals, which is really what every agent is supposed to do, every living thing, certainly. Uh, so that involves intelligence, if you want to do this uh, properly. And then there is the sort of application side of things, you know, uh, amplifying or augmenting human intelligence, having models of human intelligence, or perhaps systems that have similar level of intelligence as humans. Um, so lots of different definitions, none of which is perfect. And Raya? Yeah, it's a good thing to lay out from the beginning, so I think it's a good question to start with. And too often I see AI being used where perhaps it shouldn't. Uh, I was recently shopping for a refrigerator and was trying to find one that didn't say that it was AI-enabled, <laughs> because I frankly didn't trust or believe that. Uh, but, you know, I think that AI means that it's an artificial system that can learn in order to make decisions or take actions. And that's in the simplest set sense. Um, but then, of course, we want to push that bar further, of course. And so we think about how much that system can actually do, how general can it be, and how good those or complex those decisions are. Of course, at DeepMind, we like to talk about AGI, artificial general intelligence, and use that to denote a system that has such general capabilities to solve tasks, take decisions, take actions that it is at human level or beyond on multiple different complex domains. Sticking with you, you and Jan know each other quite well. You, when you're working your PhD, you were working together. And I want to get a sense of, sort of the trajectory that we're, we're on, you know, how we got to where we are today. I mean, just briefly, what would you say, what's the biggest change in the field in, in, in that decade? Raya, starting with you. It's hard to say. I know, that, I know that it's tempting to say, ah, look at this big step change that's been made with generative models, for instance, this year um, or in the last couple of years. But really, it, it really does just feel like a, a steady progression over time. You know, people have been working, uh, making huge advances with generative models for the last decade. This is very impressive, but, you know, it, it's been impressive all along. Uh, you know, the biggest change... I think that I would say has been the most sort of abrupt change has been the language modeling capabilities. That's something that is now the ability to learn from vast internet-sized data stores of language and be able to integrate that in a large model and then use that to be that text to image or to support a lot of other things. I think that that has been sort of the thing, one of the things that I would identify. But then in general, scale has really dramatically changed what we can do in the last 10 years. And the work that we've done in reinforcement learning in order to really be able to have agents that can explore, that can find novel solutions, and that can take actions, that's something very different, I think, than some of the other approaches that had been used before. I would, would either of you two like to just jump in briefly and say, I mean, what do you feel is really sort of sums up the last decade that gives us a sense of where we are today. I, mean, I think I, I agree with Raya that if you are in the trenches or close to the progress, you see sort of a continuous progress. But if you look at it from, from the outside and you look at press releases and articles and sort of flashy demos of, 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 of new systems, it seems more kind of discontinuous. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not. There, there is continuous progress that you see. So, for example... The revolution in natural language uh, understanding systems that we see in large language models and stuff came from two major advances, 
several years before, before you know, most of the public heard about it. One is the very wide use of self-supervised learning uh, to train those systems. So they're not trained to do a particular task, they're just trying to basically fill in the blanks. And that caused a revolution in NLP. And then before that, there was a new set of architectures called transformers that really sort of brought a new type of uh, flexibility in the models that are used. So the combination of those two things, you know, when they appeared, they, they, make a bit, they made a big splash in the community, but not in the wider public. And then it took a few years before some of those systems sort of resulted in visible progress in practical systems. But in the meantime, companies like, like, like Google and Meta and Microsoft worked to use those systems you know, for various applications internally, and this, it's a little behind the scenes. Um, so Meta, for example, uses those self-supervised transformers for translation, for uh, content moderation, you know, like hate speech filtering, stuff like that. And for you know all kinds of uh, of other things for for speech recognition you know all kinds of stuff right so so you you don't you, you don't see this 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 progress as being continuous unless you are down in the trenches and you you realize what's what's going on yeah no, I can appreciate that do you want to add anything I think those were great comments I mean having been you know in and around the field for a couple of decades you do see how progress builds on itself mm-hmm. you get that kind of exponential trend of advancements I do think language processing. And the advancements we've seen over the last, you know, three or four years there have been, have been surprising. You know, again, kind of thinking backward from what it enables people to do, it enables you to interact with machines in a much more intuitive way. And to me, that just, it's, it's, it's profound, you know, what we see. The ability to take an expression of intent and turn that into a text completion, turn that into an illustration, even a video now. Yeah. Um, at Microsoft, we have this GitHub Copilot, right, that does code completion, like text completion. Mm-hmm. So take a, a, an expression of intent and map it now to some, uh, to some function ri- written in a, a programming language. So it, it's, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time in the field, for sure. Uh, Jan, you released a paper a few months ago, so setting out a bold vision of where we are and, and what's missing. At the risk of, you know, asking you to sort of simplify that, but can you, can you give me sort of a brief summary of what your argument was there. And you know, crucially, when you talk about what's, what's missing, let's not assume what, what the goal is. You know, missing in, in, in relation to, to what? What do, we add, what, what do we want to do with these machines? And what do we need to get there? Yeah, so there's a big question, which is, you know, what is the most likely to succeed towards what I call autonomous intelligence, which, if you push it far enough, could be called human-level intelligence. I don't like the term AGI because I don't think human intelligence is general. I think human intelligence is actually quite specialized. But I think... So there are several school of thoughts about, about this. One is you have to just take the current models that we have and just scale them up and train them on more data. And I don't believe this is, this is likely to succeed by itself. I think it's, scaling is necessary but not sufficient. Another idea is you know, get reinforcement learning to work better in the real world. And again, I don't think this is likely to succeed. And then there is another thing which basically inherits from the early history of AI where there should be explicit mechanisms in AI systems for manipulating symbols and reasoning and things like this. I don't think this will work either because it's relatively incompatible with, with learning. And so what is the option really? And what is, what is it that current AI systems are not capable of doing that we observe that humans and animals are capable of doing? So humans and animals seem to be learning how the world works, mostly by observation with very little interaction in the world in the first few weeks and months of life. 
and accumulate an enormous amount of background knowledge about how the world works. And we don't know how to reproduce this type of learning with machine except in sort of very narrow domains. So that's a, the general form of this would be called self-supervised learning. And we know how to do this in the context of text. We don't know how to do this in the context of images and video. And that's a big challenge for the next few years is to get self-supervised learning methods that will work on video that would allow systems to learn everything about the world that there is to learn by watching video, essentially, or uh, watching the, the world go by. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is none of the systems that are currently the, the biggest AI systems that we, that we have are capable of reasoning. You give them a prompt and they produce reactively an answer to it, but there's no process by which an answer is being elaborated with uh, an unbounded number of steps. It's just a finite number of computational steps through some neural net, right? So what about reasoning? What about planning? When our intelligent tasks that we do consciously or not, generally we have a goal that we set ourselves, and then we figure out a sequence of, of actions that we would take that would satisfy this goal or achieve this goal. And there's none of that in pretty much none of the systems that have been built so far, except some systems that are used in the context of robotics that do this kind of planning and also for game playing, but it's, there's nothing like you know, systems that can learn sort of general models of the world. So that's sort of the, the core of that, of that paper. It's a, a vision where I say, we should get machines to learn models of the world. We should have architectures that allow them to reason, and I'm proposing one, which may or may be right, mm -hmm. and, and attempts to reach human-level intelligence by just scaling or just making our current learning algorithms better is, is not going to work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if looking back at the last 10 years, if the first five years were about getting machines to process images, computer vision, you recognize what was in images, and then in the last five years, we've had this breakthrough in, in language understanding to you know, greater or lesser extent. The next big goal is to get machines to just understand the world by you know, their visual input, what they see, you know, training it as you would like a human infant or, or an animal, from, but using video. Exactly. Okay. And so how... How important, I know all of you, to a certain extent, have worked with robots in robotics. And I mean, most of the AI systems we have today are sort of you know, disembodied. They're programs that run on servers or, or on a laptop. Uh, how important is robotics to sort of bring you know, the missing pieces of intelligence or how, how machines could learn? Right, let's start with you. You know, I really used to think, actually, that uh, robotics and embodied intelligence was absolutely critical in order to solve intelligence, mm -hmm. that that needed to be a step along the way in order to learn a grounded model of the world. And to be completely honest, I have changed in that, that view because what I see is that the models that we train now are able to learn grounded concepts, grounded understanding of the world, simply through that observational input of language and uh, images. I think there's still a long ways to go, but think about it as just being, you know, watching YouTube and perhaps conversing with, with, with others, but never actually experiencing the world. There's a lot that you can learn from simply that third-person observation of the world through other people's experience. And so I think that the models really are getting to some notion of intelligence. Is it the same as human intelligence or animal intelligence? No. But I think that it is uh, a version of, of intelligence that will be very valuable to us and honestly a much easier path than building robots that need to get to intelligence themselves. But that being said, let me say that, and, and I'm the director of robotics at DeepMind, and so I, <laughs> I need to, uh, I think that robotics is really important to work on because this gives us a very 
tangible understanding of what intelligence is. It allows us to study the acquisition of, of intelligence and be able to understand maybe how do animals learn as they go through the world, how do babies learn, etc. So I think that it's really valuable for understanding intelligence. And I also think that we need robots in the world to help us. We need robots that can come out of the factories and other sort of constrained worlds and be able to help people in their you know, more messy, unstructured worlds for agriculture, for construction, for all sorts of things. So I think that robots will be something that's quite important in the future, and we do need to crack some pretty important problems there and have some breakthroughs if we want to get to that point. So it's a little bit about understanding intelligence, but also bringing intelligence to robots in order for them to be able to be our companions and helpers in the future. Right. We spoke a few weeks ago, and I asked, you know, what, who should I be looking out for and you know, what was coming next? And I was struck by the fact that most of the people you mentioned were all working on robotics to, to a certain extent. Right. I mean, I agree with Raya in the sense that if we want to, to make significant progress in AI, we have to stop ourselves from cutting corners and, and taking sort of cheap paths towards applications that are perhaps interesting, but are kind of cheating a little bit. And the, the people who are not cheating at the moment, who are trying to really solve the important problems, are mostly working on robotics. Now, that doesn't mean that to make progress towards AI, we necessarily have to have a, a physically embodied mm-hmm. agent. It could be a virtual environment. It could be a virtual assistant whose interaction in the world is doing things like calling a search engine or doing arithmetics or something like that, right? So the the set of actions may not be something that is physical. And and I think there's an important point, though, which I may or may not agree with Raya on this, but I think we do agree, which is that I don't think language is sufficient. So I actually have a piece in a, in a philosophy magazine with a philosopher called Jake Browning together in Noema magazine where we... We explain why we think that just learning from language would be insufficient to uh, build machines that are truly intelligent, Mm -hmm. because language is a very approximate, quantized, simplified representation of of human knowledge, and certainly does not cover anything about animal knowledge. And so I'm a believer in sort of grounded AI that would require a connection with uh, an underlying reality that current language models don't have. So I think I'm agreeing with you, essentially, because you kind of said that too. And, what uh, about if we have uh, YouTube as well? Yes. If you have got plenty of uh, visual data uh, and, and not just language. I, I agree that language right. is sort of just technically it is impoverished. It's missing that grounding layer. You're not going to get that from exactly. language alone. But there's other types of data and experience without needing to have embodied first-person exactly. experience. Yeah, it could be observational completely observational. You don't need necessarily an interaction with a physical world. Uh, um, so the, the mistakes that we see large language models doing at the moment, you know, you, we ask questions and they answer something that really ma- doesn't make any sense at all, are due to the fact that those systems don't have any sort of knowledge of the underlying reality that, that language expresses. Uh, so the, so that's, that's kind of uh, the next challenge. I mean, before coming to you, actually, with uh, the same question, there was an audience member asked how... I mean, how important is just pure observation to, to learning versus you know, something that's sort of hard-coded? I mean, it's the classic blank slate argument. You know, do we, do we, are we born with some innate capacity to, to learn? I mean, how do you think about that in your approach? Well, certainly you need some prior structure, mm-hmm. either in the form of architectures of uh, neural nets or deep learning uh, systems, in the form of objective functions that the system will try to optimized by uh, learning certain things. So, for example, how is it that human babies learn to walk? 
there is something that makes them happy when they stand up by the end of you know, eight or nine months, basically. And this is sort of one internal motivation that drives us to learn to, learn to walk. So that drive to standing up and walking, that's built by evolution. But evolution doesn't tell us exactly how to walk. Mm -hmm. It just tells us, you know, you should be happy when you do. So I think a lot of what we call prior structure or innate structure is, is not in the form of a pre-programmed behavior, but in the form of some objectives that needs to be satisfied by the agent. Okay. I'm going to give the final question to the online audience. We've talked a lot about, you know, what we want AI for, but is there anything that you would say is off limits? Ashley, starting with you. Anything that we do not want AI to do? I think at the end of the day, we want to be setting the goals. We want AI to be pursuing human goals. What are our goals? We want to be empowered to pursue you know, work or play. We want to fight climate change. We want to achieve those goals in accordance with human values. And so establishing the values and then basically having AI give us those superpowers to accomplish those things within, within that framework. Jan, what about you? Anything off limits? So I think it is not for us scientists to decide in lieu of society what to do with AI. It is for society at large to decide what to do with it. And different countries will probably choose different, different uses for it. The technology is there. It can be used for good and bad. And I think it's the strength of our democratic institution, which are threatened, that will ensure that it is, it is used for the good of society and the good of people in general. But, but it's not something that I feel like have any legitimacy mm -hmm. to decide for society, right? This is, this is the, the general democratic process that should decide that. And Raya, what about you? Think what he said. <laughs> well, that makes my job easy. Thank you, all of you. Ashley, Jan, and Raya, thank you so much. Thank you. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with special thanks to Will Douglas Heaven, Amy Lammers, and Brian Bryson. It was produced by me, Emma Silikins, and Anthony Green, directed by Aaron Underwood, edited by Matt Honan, and mixed by Garrett Lang. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.